the March for Justice, the IR Omnibus Bill, what's happening with vaccines, and the good news is about polystyrene. This is The Week on Wednesday. Hello and welcome to The Week on Wednesday. I am Ben Davison and with me, as always, now live from our shed. From our shed, back in the shed. No longer coming to us from the sunny climes of Wagga and Germanicus is, of course, delighted to have his mother back. (laughs) Is Van Batham. How Hi. are you, Van? Just getting adjusted because the dog is clawing my leg. Yes, Germanicus has been very excited. Van came home on Monday night, and this is the first episode back after two episodes coming to us from Wagga. So, Van, tell us, how was the trip to Wagga? And, of course, you were up there during the March for Justice as I well. I was, I was. I had the great honour of participating in the March for Justice in Wagga. Sorry if I my sound is cutting out. I'm dog-laden. And I want to thank Councillor Vanessa Keenan uh, from Wagga City Council who organised, got the protests together because there wasn't going to be one. And she and I were on the phone and we were like, well... Let's do it. Let's make it happen. And it was an incredible day. Like the the numbers that we got in Wagga were unprecedented. So they were expecting that maybe we'd get 100. There were several hundred women there. We marched down the street. We got so much support. Shopkeepers came out to clap us old conservative country gentlemen were giving us the thumbs up and there were regional protests across Mm. Australia like there was a lot of focus on the Canberra demonstration obviously because Brittany Higgins was there and of course Scott Morrison did not come out and address the protesters which has been an interesting political moment in this country and there were obviously huge you were at the protest in Melbourne Oh, massive massive protest absolutely enormous and in Sydney it was huge as well but there were protests in Albury in Toowoomba in um, oh Geelong. I mean, it was everywhere. Ballarat. Ballarat, huge protest in Ballarat. Twelve hundred in Ballarat, and for a Monday at lunchtime in the regional area. I mean, that's mm. these are really, really big numbers, and it was it was really something the way that people found a way to participate, even if they couldn't be there. So you had a lot of women who were carrying placards that had the names of all their friends who wanted to be there but were working. Yep. There was an amazing photo that somebody uh, posted. It was a family in Anglesey mm. uh, where they they wasn't a demonstration and the mother and her daughter got the daughter was I think maybe you know nine or ten got her dolls and made placards for all of her dolls and took these amazing photos and put them on the internet of these dolls demanding uh, justice for women and equal rights and and an end to toxic misogyny and it was just incredible and I mean there were people who very very senior Australians who came who made mm. an enormous physical effort to be there and very young people as well. There was incredible support from other sections of the community. Mm. Um, I'd like to do a shout-out to the um, engineers who turned up in Canberra to back in the in the protest, which meant a lot to people, mm. you know. And I think part of what's going on at the moment is that Morrison has really misjudged just the size of this issue. Like, it's one thing to go, oh, well, you know, lefty feminist. I can tell you there were some 
people, the marches across the country, not just the one that I was at, who are not people who would describe themselves as lefty feminists, mm. but are certainly people who have a huge problem with the, the scandals that have beset the Morrison government and what's it, what it's exposed about a lack of equality in this country. And I was very privileged to speak at the Wagga demonstration and um, I, I spoke to, you know, some of the criticism I get from those kind of people on mm. social media, which is, oh, Australia's, you know, a wealthy Western country, you know, what are you complaining about? And it's like, well, that wealth is not shared equally. Like, mm. do we really think that women and men are economically equal in this country? Do we really think that men and women have an equal care burden in this country? Do we really think that women get the same opportunities that men do? And we're talking about long-term structural problems. No one is individually to blame. But the Prime Minister, as the Prime Minister, has the individual responsibility to lead change, which mm. is being demanded. And I know you're going to talk about the IR omnibus bill, but you know we have to locate what is happening to women in an in an, in an economic context because it's the the dog is now climbing on the desk this is too cute for words what's happening to women economically and the disadvantage structural disadvantages that women have is driving some really horrendous social problems the fastest growing demographic of homeless people in this country are women over the age of 55 mm. and they're in that situation Situation because real estate prices have moved far beyond what you know women with no superannuation or really low oh, rates the, of superannuation. Record multipliers of, of average wage now is the cost. The cost of a house is at a record level in terms of its comparison to what people actually earn. And social housing is not being built at a rate no. to accommodate the population of people who need it. And I want to do a shout out to uh, Labor MP Jason Clare, who's been absolutely fantastic on the campaign for my more social housing and for public housing and has been really vocal over the past few months and doing some great media appearances about how this is crisis in our community. Mm. And it, it is shocking how we treat older women in this country. Absolutely appalling. And yet Scott Morrison came out in the wake of all of these monumental protests and we know that he wouldn't go down there in Canberra. He said, you know, he'd made a couple of the girls in his office. I'm paraphrasing, but mm. come on. Mm. I mean, I think we can all guess how that conversation went behind and, closed and, doors. And did you see the footage of uh, Jane Hume bailing up one of the organisers in the Parliament House corridor? Did I see it? Did yeah. I lose my balloon so about it on it, Twitter? It? Yeah. Where she physically heavied her and kept like putting her hands on her yeah. and sort of pulled out. It's a great out opportunity this... for you to meet the oh, Prime Minister. Oh, it's really exciting Make to sure meet the Prime Minister. It. Yeah. It's like, love, oh. if you think it's exciting to meet Scott Morrison, you have led a very narrow life. And yeah, and to their credit, the organisers of the march said, no, he can come down here. The people are here. He's the prime minister, and of course, the comparison was drawn was drawn with John Howard mm. when he was pushing gun laws. You know, it unequivocally good decision that was that Howard made, um, and fronted all of the you know more gun rights people mm. Um, mm. wearing his bulletproof vest because it was and knowing that he was going to be yelled yeah. at and going to a protest for people who are keen on guns. Oh, <laughs> yeah, exactly. And and Bob Hawke did exactly the yeah. same thing. He walked out to a protest of forty thousand people who are like, die, hawky, die, and spoke to them because that's the job. Bill Shorten gave a really good interview, I think it was yesterday or the day before, where he was like, look, you know, you can't expect every time you turn up to get a bunch of flowers. That's not what leadership is. Mm. Leadership is facing the people who are telling you you're wrong and listening to them and taking that that, that on board. And Morrison will not do it because, and I'm going to say this unequivocally, unequivocally, Ben, the man is a coward. 
you know, he doesn't mm. hold a hose, mate. He doesn't meet the protesters, mate. Oh, well, if they're so interested, they can come to me. And for Jane Hume, you know, to be like this kind of like self-volunteering puppet of this garbage from the Prime Minister is embarrassing on a personal level for her, but her behaviour with one of the march organisers and really look at the footage because she heavies oh, yeah. her. But the point I wanted to make about the economic stuff and the, and the mm. growing crisis with housing for, um, for senior Australian women and homelessness and the shocking problems that are going on is that Scott Morrison's SOP to the angry, furious crowd of women all over the country, there were 45 mm. protests, 45 mm. Um, was to say, well, look, if you're experiencing domestic violence, we're going to make it easier for you to draw down on your super. Mm. So even though you are statistically more likely to be careening into a future where you have significantly less super than men, where you are likely to live longer and have less money to live longer on and we are not providing housing for you, you can make your retirement even more uncomfortable or stay with your abuser. And it was just like, oh, my God. And Peter Murphy, who's the member for Dunkley, absolutely cracked her noodle in the parliament and gave a 90-second speech, which I which I put on my Facebook page and I certainly urge you all to mm. listen to, uh, where she just absolutely tore into the government. And, of course, this is, the, this is the same person. Jane Hume is the Minister for Superannuation, right? So this is, there's, a sort of, uh, there's a sort of terrible cycle here that closes around on this issue uh, in terms of women leaving domestic violence situations, accessing their super. Uh, the Minister for Superannuation, who's really trying to help Scott Morrison out by heavying one of the protest organisers in the hallway. Um, and if you look at the if you look at the footage, you know we say heavying because that's the physical reality of that situation. Uh, and in addition to that, of course, the other reality coming out of the pandemic is that tens of thousands of women have already emptied their super accounts because, of course, the government said to people, well, you're going to have to fund your own survival during the pandemic and saw $35 billion taken out of superannuation and and the vast majority of it out of women's superannuation uh, and tens of thousands of women wiping their balances to zero already. So oh, going to women and saying, oh, well, now you can take another 10 grand. Well, actually... There's no 10 grand There's no 10 grand to take. This is, and this will just compound the problems these women face later in life because oh, yeah. there's a there's a compound effect of taking your super out before you retire. Like, what you take out... Now, the 10000 you take out now is is will cost you... Up to $100,000. Like, later, in, la- later yeah. in life, when you need the money the most, when you don't have an income. But it's this government's like obsession with destroying superannuation. And you and I have talked about this enough. So in the past 12 months, we've had, oh, you should be able to draw down on your superannuation in order to get a loan for a house. Mm. Oh, you should be able to draw down on your superannuation to pay your way through the pandemic. Oh, you should be able to draw your draw down your superannuation in order to escape domestic violence. It's almost been like there's a theme here that involves eroding the capacity for ordinary working Australians to have money to retire on. Oh, absolutely. And that, that that's absolutely a key theme of the Morrison government. It, it 
is shocking to see them use this this March for Justice movement and the calls for more support for women, for justice for women. We've seen the ACTU say there are 55 recommendations in, from the inquiry and sexual intersexual harassment in the workplace that just haven't been addressed by the government. Um, why aren't you doing something on that? And what do they do? They, they pivot to a, a policy that allows them to achieve their ideological goal, which is to destroy superannuation and, and frankly leaves women, particularly women, more vulnerable uh, in the short term and the long term because we know we know that financial abuse is one of the tools that abusers use against their partners. In fact, there was a study out of the University of Wisconsin a few years ago, which I've written about and I use a lot, mm. about how the proportion of physical violence that you receive as a woman in a physically abusive relationship, there's a, there's a direct proportion to how financially dependent you are on your partner. So if you're in an abusive relationship, and your partner has total financial control over you, you are likely to experience the most extreme levels of violence. It's it's a shocking and, and sad uh, reality. But of course, like all the realities that we live with, these are realities that we can create and control. So we can have policy that reshapes this situation. We can, and there are lots of recommendations in reports around sexual harassment in the workplace, around how we support people fleeing domestic violence. It's interesting that I can't recall ever seeing, and and I don't know, maybe you have, Van, but I can't recall ever seeing any um, academic work or uh, support uh, agency work that says what women need to do is empty their superannuation. And have less money to retire on. I haven't yeah, seen that. Yeah, that's not a thing. So I had a conversation with a, a former Liberal Member of Parliament on this specific issue who talks about the financial abuse of women in extremely wealthy sections of society mm. and the fact that we know that domestic violence, it's not about being poor or no. rich. And there are women who live in extremely seemingly plush circumstances who are, you know, who are victims of domestic violence, and one of the key ways to prevent them from reporting and leaving is that their partners have total financial control over them, and that their wealth is mm. entirely conditional on their male partner. And I mean. The people in the Liberal Party know this. Like this mm. has been known for a really long time. That's their core constituency, and yet, where's the solidarity with those women in their own base? I mean, it isn't there. And I mean, part of it, it, it has been so shocking this week to watch the Morrison government wheel out the few women they have mm. in their own caucus. Like, let's remember, they have 86, I think, members of parliament between the House of Reps and the Senate. Mm. That And they of oh, those... Slightly more than that, I think. Yeah. Uh, no, it's uh, that's not including the National Party. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Yep, no, you're right. And yep. of those 86, only 18 are women. It's 21% of their caucus, 21. So only wow. one in five. And yet they have basically found all the women they can. So you had Jane Hume, you've had Nicole Flint, you've had Holly Hughes, Holly Hughes yesterday. And how can you be so mean to that? As a woman in the coalition, like I feel, you know, it's really exciting to hang out with the Prime Minister. It's just really exciting. Like world leaders come through here all the time. And I'm just like, look, the word I'm going to use, Ben, I don't like using this word because it makes me very angry, is traitors. I think they are traitors. I think their lack of solidarity is disgusting. I think the fact that it is 
well known in that caucus what the problems are with women and financial disparity and the threat of mm. violence and vulnerability in this community. They know it because I have had those conversations with people and for them to participate in this charade is traitorous. And, of course, it's even more stunning when you consider that the, the Liberal Party is really where this started a month ago. So the, the rallies took place a month after the revelations around um, Brittany Higgins' uh, alleged rape came out. That, that That's a month to the day was when the rallies occurred. Uh, and of course, Brittany Higgins was a Liberal Party staffer. The incident took place in a Liberal Minister's office. Um, the accused was another Liberal Party staffer. The, the ministers who were involved were Liberal Party ministers. You know, it's a Liberal Prime Minister, Liberal staffers in the Prime Minister's office. There's a whole thing here. And, and of course, Brittany Higgins spoke at the rally in oh, Canberra. Oh, she did, wearing suffragette white. An incredible, an incredible um, moment in in Australian political uh, history, really, in a way, uh, because it, it wasn't about party politics. No, Julia Banks spoke in Melbourne and Grace Tame spoke in Tasmania. Like, there was an incredible diversity. Grace Tame, of course, Australian of the Year. Australian of the Year. Appointed by Scott Morrison. Exactly. And, you know, this is is the clarion call that I think they ignore at their peril. People are furious. And I have to say, Ben, I saw some research yesterday that was publicly reported in The Guardian, um, that fantastic newspaper of note. It is a rather good publication, (laughs) I believe. But I saw some research yesterday that said that the Liberal Party is starting to understand that this isn't just uh, university-educated women who lean to the left who are upset about this now, that actually this no, is as, as you and I, through. As you and I found out on Twitter, there were some university-educated women apparently from the left who were too good to go. I mean, we did see that happen. Yeah, yeah. But, uh, you know, so it is... As much as the Liberal Party uh, seem to be trying to make this a, oh, well, this is just a, a, a political front um, to attack us, it's like, no, no, these are people who want action on this issue. Hundreds of women in Wagga held by the Deputy Prime Minister Michael McCormack of the National Party. And, and they're really ignoring that at their peril and trying to make it about something that it's not in order to shore up their own position seems to really just be aggravating a broader and broader cross-section of not just women, but also men seem to be really actually starting to go, hang on, this is a real issue and, and why isn't our government addressing it? Well, absolutely. And I think the majority of men are completely on board with what women are saying. Mm. Like, we live in a community, you know, that isn't, we don't actually have gender segregation in this country where women are this sort of, you know, separate species. Separate species. <laughs> like, I understand rather a lot of the Morrison government went to some very strange, you know, single-sex schools with some quite odd rituals of behaviour and then off to single-sex colleges at, mm. at Sandstone Universities. But that's not actually how the majority of us live. Like, the mm. majority mm. of us can see one another and form relationships and have, oh, my God, families or communities. Mm. Like, it's all workplaces. <laughs> Amazing. And... I think they really don't they don't want to get what's going on. They don't really care. They think it's just something they can weather. You know, there was some fantastic cartoons about how they were just going to hide under the desk until it all went away. Yeah. You know, and this is not where people are at. Like, this is an ongoing issue and we are visible to one another. I did another interview with the lovely Marcus Paul on 2SEM, uh, 2SM, 2SM, 2SM the other day where he was like, oh, is it against men? And I was like, no, it's against rapists. Yeah. 
Yeah. Like, and if you're not a rapist, presumably you're on my side. Like, well, you know, look, you know, I think on on that topic in that uh, we all have workplaces and communities. Uh, interestingly, Christian Porter, uh, who is of course the the notional industrial relations minister is still on leave. Uh, Michaela Cash is now acting industrial relations minister and is really pushing hard for industrial relations changes. But we've seen some of the crossbench senators go, well, hang on a minute. Why are we going to deal with this while yeah, you're not just not dealing with this massive issue and the minister who'd be responsible is not even at work? You know, this is a, this is a pretty serious time for the government to be ignoring these issues around sexual harassment, rape allegations, the treatment of women in our society, and at the same time pushing a pretty strong barrow around workplace relations changes, which would come under the minister who is, frankly, under a pretty dark cloud on this issue. Yeah, it is interesting timing, is it not? And, of course... You know, right now, as we speak, and as this will be going uh, going up online, the the crossbench is considering those industrial relations changes, and we're seeing lots of debate now about what this means, how this will play out. The crossbench senators, as I've already said, saying, "Well, we don't want it. This shouldn't be coming up now. And if it is going to come up, here's a stack of amendments." Yeah, there's a stack of amendments. The ones from Jackie Lambie are <laughs> fantastic. Yeah. Basically, strike this entire paragraph, strike this entire paragraph. Uh, I am really concerned about One Nation, given the fact that One Nation had their dream to abolish the family court realised by the government, the mm. family court that was established to provide uh, some kind of empowerment for women and children in custody cases and family mm. legal disputes. Um, has been abolished, which is a tragedy for so many families, vulnerable families, families who are going through things that no family should have to go through. But it's been abolished with a whisk of the pen from the Liberals and Nationals at One Nation's demand. And, of course, the concern is that the decision to do that, that was the trade-off, was they'd get the support for the IR bill. And I've got to say two interesting uh, facts on this point. Apparently a third of one one Nation voters in Queensland will not vote One Nation if they pass the... Yeah. omnibus bill, but they will be ripping out a third of their own votes if they do pass it. But the other thing was that you and I watched that absolutely just off the just off the ceiling. I can't even, I'm struggling to come up with a metaphor for how totally devoid from of reality and removed from just basic like logic um, Pauline Hanson interview about sexual consent last night and you just think how is a person who cannot answer a question do you think education about consent should be taught in schools she couldn't answer that question now obviously a reasonable person goes well yeah that's a pretty big deal like Mm. obviously we should be teaching about sexual consent in schools obviously if people are consuming pornography and not and young people Mm. are not realizing that this is fantasy stuff that this is not what real sex is like you know it's an entertainment product Mm. you know it You know, obviously we would go, yes, of course, like that's a fundamental, you know, safety issue in the community. 
I can sort of, you know, do, using my theatre training to pretend I was just a horrible right-wing conservative lunatic, I can imagine going, Mark, this doesn't need to be taught. This is about the family and teachers teaching about mm, sexual mm. education is uh, oversteps the mark of the traditional family in it. Like I can sort of get that with, at a strong imaginative leap. It's all right, everybody. I'm, I'm properly trained to do that. What Pauline Hanson did, Ben, can you... Oh, it was it was off the wall. It was, <laughs> I don't think she expected the question and hadn't really thought about it, except to sort of ramble a little bit incoherently about family, and then to say, "Well, what about what about um, children being married off to to grown men, and that's a bigger problem? And why isn't the media covering that?" I read about that in the media yesterday, and Islam, and like really just yeah, the just, ran, just randomly shattered the word Islam. The word in the, Islam into it the, was the, weird, the and all I could think is she. He's voting on industrial relations. And, and, you know, can I just... I want to tie these things together because there is there are links here, and I think it's important that we make the links and that we we really explore those links, right? So we're in a we're in a moment in Australian history where the treatment of women and women women's role in society is is really being questioned and is really being brought to the fore because of some horrible things that have happened to women, uh, particularly that have happened in our parliament or involving people in in our parliament or allegations against people in our parliament, right? At the same time, you've got a political party in one nation that has uh, has pushed for and has achieved one of its aims, which was to abolish the family court, which is fundamentally about securing the rights of women leaving relationships. At the same time, you've got the Liberal Party saying to women, well, you're going to fund your own, um, your own escape from domestic violence out of mortgaging your retirement and so that you can't have a retirement. And we know and we've discussed all the impacts that that has. And at the same time, the Liberal Party appears or the speculation is that there's been some deal with One Nation involving the abolishment of the family court, which again predominantly will have a negative impact on women and children uh, in order to pass legislation about industrial relations, which fundamentally will strip away the rights of casual and part-time workers. Who are overwhelmingly women. Women. So this all comes together, you know, in a, in a really disturbing um, attack on women and the role of women in our society and the rights of women in our society and, and the right for women to have financial security and job security and, and the capacity to build their own financial base in order to be active, independent participants in our society. And I've got to say, Van, and I know, I know I'm know, i only saying what many, many other people are already thinking and saying out there, but I feel I have to say it too. I think it's an outrageous abuse by the Morrison government. Oh, it's appalling. And I think it goes to his core fundamental beliefs. That women are inferior to men. And, and it's shocking. And that, you know, this... Because for those of you who aren't necessarily keyed in with the you know, ideological religious framework that Morrison comes from. In that particularly conservative strain of Protestant Christianity that he's very happy to publicly represent, there's a notion called headship. Mm. And headship is about how the, you know, the spiritual, the, the, you know, righteous spiritual life involves a man as the head of his family, like literally a patriarch with everybody falling into line, you know. And this is from like 2,000-year-old bits of the Bible about mm. women keeping their heads down and their hair covered and, you know, this notion of male control, which is part of a contemporary ideology. I find it very interesting that these people are like, yeah, we're into male headship 
And it's like, you know, the bits of the Bible also say don't eat crustaceans. And I've seen you with prawns, friend. I bet you mix fibres. And um, I bet you've been to church with women who are menstruating and people with eye problems, like all of which is verboten in the same bits of the Bible that, you know, the whole New Testament is about moving on from, by the way. Um, And it is really disturbing that this this stuff comes from ideologically. And it's out of touch with the modern world and it's out of touch with the community and it's out of touch with basic morality. But you can see it, like creating a structure that actually perpetuates inequality. You can only do that if you fundamentally believe that Mm. those who are presently unequal deserve to remain inferior. And and that's really what the IR Omnibus Bill establishes. It strips away the rights to back pay for casuals who've been misclassified. It strips away the rights for overtime payments. It makes it easier effectively to call someone a casual when their job is not really casual. Like it strips away the few protections that casual and part-time workers have who are, as you say, overwhelmingly women. uh, And it gives more power to bosses who are overwhelmingly still men in our society for all of the for all of the nice fluff pieces that you might see in the good weekend about you know particular female CEOs or what have you oh there's still a tiny minority a tiny minority and and underrepresented on boards and underrepresented in senior management roles and underpaid i mean this is one of the really interesting things that goes on in this country and when i say the wealth is not shared equally mm. that if you're a woman CEO you are statistically like likely to earn less money than a male CEO, mm. like even if you do ascend the, loft, uh, ascend the lofty heights. I actually participated in a pay scale review for the Victorian state government recently mm. and it was really, really fascinating um, because it was about pay packages for people who run government departments and projects and things like that. And a lot of people participated in it. And it was just so fascinating because there was an argument that there should be pay caps and then there were people arguing, oh, but if we cap pay, we can't get the talent, blah, blah, mm. blah. And essentially, and I brought it up in the meeting I was in, I was like, you understand that you're structurally perpetuating discrimination against women here because if you're from a women's organisation and you're less likely to, you won't be paid um, what you're, if you were the CEO of something that overwhelmingly is dominated by men. Like we yeah. just make those decisions that things like public transport or roads overwhelmingly dominated by, you know, by male men. leadership yeah. roles. Yeah. They, oh, well, we can't possibly have caps on that, but your women's organisation, your women, women's health organisation, you know, your domestic violence, blah, blah, blah. Like, and I'm just like, so it also creates this situation where CEOs who are paid at a certain level in one job will expect to be paid that in another job. Yeah. And, and I've sat in recruitment meetings where it's like, oh, well, you know, is this really a CEO role if they were only paid X amount of money? And it's just everywhere. It saturates every level. It just keeps dragging women down. And it's down, fundamentally it? based on a belief that women are inferior. And, like, there is no logic around that. There is no inherent inferiority of women, I think. We're all old enough and ugly enough to accept that now. And I think one of the one of the kind of ironies in in this discussion and, and people go, oh, yeah, but, you know, Michaela Cash, she's the acting minister for IR and she's leading the discussion and Pauline Hanson's a woman and Sally McManus and, and Michelle O'Neill are women and they're all, you know, they're all in this and Jackie Lambie's a woman and she'll have a say. It's like, yes, but have you noticed that they're having to to try and either stop or fix or pass a bill written by 
Christian Porter, a man, um, at the behest of Scott Morrison, a man, while being Representing industries that are run by... By men who are lobbying them, who are men. At the same time, now Pauline Hanson is creating amendments, apparently, that she won't show anyone and that the government won't show anyone. You know, that, 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 so there becomes a kind of cultural capture, even, for some women, not all women, obviously, but for some women who get in, into those roles. You know, Jackie Lambie wrote her amendments, put them out to the world, said, if the government's prepared to actually step up and protect casuals, again, who are overwhelmingly women, uh, and enforce wage theft laws properly, like they do in Victoria, not overwrite them with softer laws, then great. And here's my amendments. And the world can have a look. And let's have a proper debate and discussion. And let's have Sally McManus talk about this and whether it's good or bad. And let's have Michaela Cash, the minister, talk about this and whether it's good or bad. Jackie Lambie did that. Pauline Hanson, however, has made her amendments secret, is being lobbied by uh, the business big business lobby, who are overwhelmingly also represented by men. So it's not just men in the executive roles, it's also men who are the lobbyists. And of course, is only sharing that with Michaelia Cash. And I want people to understand, because there's quite a lot of writing about, like, why does this happen? How does Pauline Hanson or Michaelia Cash's loyalty to these male-dominated projects and mm. male leadership, like, how does that happen? Like, at which point do you not go, hang on, these people are fundamentally not on my side? And, you know, obviously there are a lot of factors about, you know, how you're raised, the values around you, the traditions you grow up with. But the the term that's used is called the patriarchal bargain, and it's, it's this sort of sociological concept that has a psychological manifestation where there are women who believe that if if they align themselves with male power, if they tell everybody Scott Mor- meeting Scott Morrison is really exciting mm. and, you know, like refuse to attend a women's demo when they are perhaps women, the, the belief is that by sidling up to male power, they are above these inferior women who these sort of patriarchal men conceive of. You know, we're mm. all inferior, but they're special and they have a special role and that they will be protected from what we go through by aligning themselves with male power. And I'd just like to remind people about the fate of Linda Reynolds and the fate of Susan Lay and mm. the fate of Julie Bishop mm. and the fate of Julia Banks and the fate of Christine Holgate and the fate of it goes on and on and on and on. And just remind anybody who's like, oh, yeah, well, I'm I'm more of one of the boys. Like, I just not a lot of my friends are women. And, yeah, feminism's not for me. I don't find that a very useful term. Like, I make my own way. And I got my position on merit. I'm like, yep. And good luck with that, love. Yeah. Well, look, I would encourage people to contact their senators, particularly their senators, particularly if you're in Queensland or South Australia or Tasmania, um, particularly Queensland and South Australia, frankly, to to talk about the IR bill. Because as Van said, um, a third of One Nation voters have said they will not support One Nation if they vote for the government's IR bill. Um, and I think it's something like nearly two-thirds of Centre Alliance yeah, voters... Yeah, Centre Alliance voters really do not like it. They won't and given it. the fact that that party brand is basically dead, I don't think they can afford to lose a single one, let alone two out of three. So please do get in contact with them and let them know that you do not want them to support a bill which will fundamentally leave... not. Look, it'll leave all workers worse off, right? And I don't want to—I don't want to diminish the impact this is going to have on other people, um, like on men um, and young workers and older workers and and people who don't identify as women, um, because it will have a negative impact on them. Absolutely, all workers will be impacted. But 
there will be a disproportionate impact on women in the workplace by these by these laws, and that's been borne out in all of the we know evidence. That. We know all this. of the evidence. Yeah, of course. So do get in contact with them. Do let them know they shouldn't uh, support it because uh, it will go, it will be happening, it will be happening this week. And speaking of women in the workplace, um, Ben and I are very honest about the fact that we have labour values mm. and labour beliefs and because we have those beliefs, I just want to say, like a lot of other labour people have said, there has been um, reportage of female staffers from the Labor Party who have complaints about various men in the Labor Party and their behaviour, and there have been allegations of misconduct that have been circulated amongst that group. Tanya Plibersek came out today and said she wants to know, like there has mm. to be remonstration. The Labor Party should be a place where every woman feels she participates equally and has a right to be safe, and that they are doing something about it, and they want that to happen. And I'm sure we speak on behalf of all Labor people saying that sexual misconduct is not a Labor value. We stand for something better and fairer and equal, and I certainly encourage any woman affected by those particular allegations to go to Tanya Plibersek and take the appropriate action to see justice. Absolutely. Look, I want to move on uh, a little bit because one of the so other... So angry! I know, and yeah, right. So, so angry! Rightly so. Angry! Rightly so. Um, it was so good to hang out with other angry women. <laughs> we were angry together and it felt great. Uh, well, look, the, one of the other big stories that's happening at the moment, of course, is around the COVID-19 vaccines and the rollout of COVID-19 vaccines. Ben, have the Morrison government totally failed to run a vaccine schedule? Oh, it's totally fallen over. Although I noticed that Scott Morrison is thoroughly vac- vaccinated. Well, How fortunate. You know, this is evolving all the time and, and I... And I think it's important that we start from a position of vaccines are important. Vaccines, you should get a vaccine when it's made available to you. uh, And you should absolutely put your faith and trust in science and medicine. I love science. I love medicine. These things are fundamentally a good part of our civilization. And and if anybody wants to know just my personal antipathy towards anti-vaxxers, I was not vaccinated for measles as a child because my poor mother um, was persuaded out of it by a crazy anti-vax doctor. I do not blame my mother for what happened. She listened to medical advice at the time um, from a dude who was obviously a quack. I have written extensively Mm. about what it's like to almost die of measles when you were 17 and the scars that I bear across my face because not getting that one vaccine meant that I got measles, all of my immunities were wiped out and within two years I also had mumps, chickenpox, rubella and whooping cough. So when the vaccine's available to you, get it. One of the issues that we're having, of course, is the availability of vaccine. So at this point, we're supposed to have had nearly 4 million Australians vaccinated. And how many have we had, Ben? Uh, It looks like more like 170,000. So really, that's only about 5% of the target number. Now, of the target number for this stage, like not for this stage, for this stage. Of course, the target the target that was initially set was that every Australian who wanted to be vaccinated would be able to be so by October. That now Brennan Murphy, who's the um, department head, has said that that's looking increasingly unlikely. Because the Morrison government just can't get it together. They cannot get it together. And look, they're trying to blame Europe because they Europe has withhold, withheld a couple of hundred thousand doses. But, you know, you don't need to be a maths genius to go a couple hundred thousand doses is not four million doses. Uh, and so there's just a reality here that is the Morrison government is behind schedule. And the Morrison government is not delivering the vaccines in the way they need to be delivered. But I thought the Morrison government 
government wanted us to get back to business as soon as possible. I thought, you know, our poor small business people were suffering so terribly. And let's and face they it, are. they have. Yeah, absolutely. And are certainly going to suffer heavily after the 31st of March when JobKeeper disappears and there's suddenly less spending money in the economy. But I remember very strongly all this rhetoric about staying open and what's a few dead old people between friends. And yet we're not doing everything we possibly can to vaccinate against this disease so we can all go back to normal. And okay, consistent message. Scotty, thank you. And this you. is a fundamental problem because now we're supposed to be heading towards <laughs> stage 1B. So stage 1A was like your frontline workers, your quarantine workers, you know, the people who are really at a much higher risk of contracting COVID because they interact with people coming from overseas. Stage 1B was your people who would be at risk if there was some kind of outbreak in the community. So your people over the age of 70, for, for people in the Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander communities, that's people over 55. For your health workers who are not necessarily in a hotel quarantine or something. Immunocompromised people. So yeah. these were your 1B um, category people. That's around 6.14 million Australians. Now, keep in mind that your your 1A group was going to be about 4 million. Your 1B is another 6.14. That's about 10 million. There's about 25 million people in Australia. So that would have been 10 out of 25 million. We only we've only we've only covered off 170,000 yeah, people. Yeah, this is a problem we, given the suffering of Australia's tourism industry, like places like Cairns, you know, where it's it's all grinding to a halt. And like I said, when JobKeeper's cut off on the 31st of March, and yet we still can't guarantee Australia is COVID free. Well, this is going to be a huge huge issue for a number of reasons. One. You've got these issues coming out of Papua New Guinea, Papua New Guinea now, where we're seeing large numbers of people who have COVID, and we're seeing that start to filter across into Queensland, into hotel quarantine and workforces who who are coming from PNG who who have COVID. Um, now they, they're keeping that in hotel quarantine at the moment, and they're doing a great job restricting that. But of course. You do vaccinations in order to limit the capacity for those things to have a broader outbreak. So there's an issue there. There's a potential issue there. Another issue, of course, is that Europe is having another spike. Cases in Europe are going up again. Again. This is sort of fourth wave stuff now in Europe. And it's really sad to see. UK seems to be getting it a bit under control, but now continental Europe is having... But they're vaccinating like crazy in the UK. They are. They really are. And in Europe, they're trying to do vaccinations, but they're having problems with production, which is part of the issue for us in Australia is, of course, they're having an outbreak, they're having problems with production, they don't want to export uh, vaccinations to Australia, which you can understand, right? When you've got 10,000 people a day getting COVID, the idea that you'd send some of your very limited supply when you're millions of doses behind in your own country to a country that has two or three in hotel quarantine... You can imagine if I was a legis- if I was a member of the French Assembly or the Italian Parliament, I would probably be going. Why are we like love Australia, great allies, fantastic beaches? Bit confused about drop bears, but thanks for Normandy, everyone. Yeah. <laughs> but we're not sending them the vaccine because we haven't got enough. So that's going to be an issue. And now, of course, just to pile on top of everything else, you've got Matt Canavan, the LNP senator for coal. For, you know, <laughs> dragging up as a coal miner with the sprinkling of well, the LNP sprinkling senator. of artistic coal dust across his face. And if you don't believe me, look at his Twitter profile. He's, he's, get a vomit bag. He's really the 
Trump, he sent it for coal executives. His brother owned a coal mine that went bankrupt, and we've talked about this before. But So he's out there now going, well, we should stop using the AstraZeneca vaccine because France, Italy, Spain, and Germany have suspended the rollout of that particular vaccine because of concerns around blood clots. Now, the, the UK government has rolled out um, roughly 17 million of those vaccines, and they're saying that, well, actually, the prevalence of blood clots in the population of people who've had the vaccine is less than the prevalence of blood clots in the general population, and therefore there's no issue. The Australian uh, medical um, establishment is saying much the same thing. Yeah, no, that's course, not a thing that happens. Canavan has come out, and now Craig Kelly. Oh, Craig Kelly! Our good friend oh Craig Kelly, the former liberal. We didn't hear from him for five whole minutes. Has come out and called for the suspension as well. He did a weird thing where he held up a f- printed out photo of himself at a doorstop in Canberra uh, getting a vaccine in order to um, try and demonstrate that he's not an anti-vaxxer, even though his Facebook page is just covered in anti-vax propaganda. Oh, they always get vax. They always get them, don't they? These... It's like, I'm not an anti-vaxxer, but just... you shouldn't get a vaccination. Yeah, I'm not an anti-vaxxer. You should get a vaccination. I don't want people to lose their freedom of choice, but I'm going to be vaccinated to the health because I don't want the disease that will kill you. So I want to I want to make a clear delineation here, right? Because there are there are issues that are beyond any single government's control because they come about due to other global factors and other governments making decisions within their own borders. And some of the, those issues that I've just described, they're things that I don't I don't blame the Morrison government for the French or Italian government Mm. not wanting to export stuff, right? That's not Morrison's fault. What Morrison is responsible for, though... Is not having a plan, not having any Not having a plan. There's supposed to be an online uh, appointment... Uh, website that people will be able to book in with one of the 1,000 GPs around the country to get a vaccine if they're in that 1B category. Mm. Now, as of yesterday, that website didn't exist. As of this morning, and and GPs and the medical professionals were saying this is a real problem. It's supposed to go. We're supposed to be giving people the jab in five days. It's supposed to be from Monday, and and it's not even up and running. What are you going to do? So they've launched something today. Now, today, people are saying it doesn't work properly, it, It's you can't really make a booking, you can't actually identify where you are, all these sorts of mm, problems, yeah, right? Yeah. So what I blame Morrison for is the things he is responsible for. He is responsible for us having a national plan on vaccinations. He is responsible for rolling out that He wanted plan. the glory job. He left everything else up to the states when it was a national responsibility to coordinate. Like, and it's foreseeable. Yeah. It's foreseeable it's that other countries would not want to export limited supply of a vaccine to another country. Yeah, it's entirely foreseeable. you know. And he did all those announcements about this many millions and this many millions and this many millions of vaccines and now here we are in a situation where, frankly, for Australia to get to its targets, we would need to become the world's best vaccination uh, rollout country. Israel, which is currently the world's best vaccination rollout country, is rolling out somewhere around 180,000 vaccines a day for us to meet our targets, we would need to get above 210,000. That's that's a huge, huge increase. And we're just not anywhere near it. So it's a problem. Um, do, do keep an eye out when vaccines are available for you and your cohort of people. Do get them when they're available. Um, 
look, it might take it. It might take some time. In the meantime, remember social distancing. Remember to wash your hands. Remember to wear a mask where you can't social distance. And if you're in any doubt at all, just do things that are safe. Of course. Just do things. That I are love safe. safe. I'm pro safe. That's that's my little rant about vaccines. That's all right. I love it. I'm I'm in. <laughs> can we talk about some good news? Yeah, we can talk. About, I've got two bits of good news. Let's go for it. Okay, number one is the city of Minneapolis in the United States has reached an out of court settlement with the family of George Floyd. Yep. Now George Floyd, of course, is the man who had the cop's knee on his neck, was murdered by police in that city, and his murder uh, and the horrific video of him dying and begging to be be allowed to breathe, set off the Black Lives Matter movement, $27 million from the city taking responsibility to his family, which is amazing. So that's a bit of justice, although I'm sure they'd pay $27 million to have their father and their son It's good to see some justice. Some justice. So that's great. Polystyrene is being phased out of food packaging products in Australia by 2022. It's voluntary, so it's not Mm. mandated, which is disappointing, but people are on board, you know, that this is not good for the environment. Australia is going to be one of the countries um, participating in a treaty against marine plastic. The UN is taking this stuff really seriously. So given the fact that there is an island the size of Texas Texas floating around in the Atlantic, which is made entirely of plastic, uh, yeah, probably time to, to stop using it. Well, it's fantastic news that they're going to try and, and phase this out. Of course, totally agree with you, Van. Baby seals. If it could be, Baby if it could seals. be made mandatory, that would be better. And we do see some of the state governments, Labor state governments in particular, pushing um, banning single-use plastics. I think they're doing that in Queensland. Actual now. mandatory regulatory responses. And of course, folks, the, the reality is, if you want actual hard rules and laws and regulations that deliver environmental outcomes, you've got to have a Labor government. Mm-hmm. Otherwise, you will get really nice announcement and a really great concept and we support the eradication no of polystyrene, but no no teeth. So let me tell you the uh, level of recycling of recyclable materials mm-hmm. in Australia has uh, has gone down by a quarter since we had a Liberal government. So yeah. it used to be around 12% of recyclables were recycled in Australia. Up until the Liberals got elected, now it's down to 9%. Anyway, the good news there is, though, there has been a commitment to eradicate polystyrene. And that's a start. And I'm not going to poo-poo a start. I love a start. Got to have a start. Got to have a start. To have any momentum, you've actually got to start. And on that start, we come to the end of our show for the week. So meta. (laughs) It's good to be back. I missed you. I missed you too, darling. I know you did. You called me every day. (laughs) And look, I want to thank everybody for bearing with us over the last couple of weeks as we've had a bit of an unsettled schedule, um, but we really appreciate everybody's support. We continue to have huge numbers of people listening, people getting in touch. We really appreciate that. If you do have any ideas or any issues or you think we got something wrong, do let us know because we're always keen to make sure that we're addressing the key issues of the week and we're getting it right. That's important to we us. We love getting things right, so always let us know. And do please remember to share this episode on all of your social media channels where Wherever you get your podcasts, do make sure that you're sharing that link with Have people. Have it playing out loud from your iPhone and shove it in the face of your mum. <laughs> That's right. Talk to these issues uh, with your workmates, with your family, with your mum, and have a really great week. Don't forget to tune in to the Weekend Wrap on Sunday evening, uh, where we'll do a rapid-fire cover-off of some of the issues that occur between We say we, but it involves Ben doing it, because on Sundays I'm often indisposed. (laughs) So 
So thanks very much for listening. Love you, Vanny. Oh, I love you too. It's good to be home. Bye. Bye.